Welcome back, Pounders. Today, we got a special episode today that is focused on alternative investments. As we all know, the stock market has not been the most fun of late. So I connected with my good friend, Andy, who introduced me to his company, which is called Ground Floor. I found it very fascinating. This is in no way an ad whatsoever. I truly thought this was interesting for our guests and for my friends. I've been telling them about it as well. So I was fortunate enough to get the CEO, Brian Daly of Ground Floor, who has an extensive experience, obviously, within the real estate, alternative investments, and investing in general. You should so, just stop controlling interest rates, let them rise to the level they should go to right now, and then you've got the inflation under control, bang out. But they don't believe in doing that, so with them in power. Experts, economists have said themselves uh, that this would uh, be, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act would, um, uh, uh, would, would. Welcome to the show, Brian. I'm very excited to talk to you about this. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. For those who may not know yourself, of course, or ground floor, you want to just give a quick, brief background. Have you always been in the real estate space or what brought you to creating ground floor? Well, I will tell that story. And in doing so, I'm going to hazard to guess that most of us feel like we're not getting our fair share of the pie. And I think a lot of people feel that way in today's world. Like there's kind of just this sense that there's sort of whether you're trading or investing or maybe in the housing market, you're not getting your share, fair share of the pie. The reason we started Ground Floor is because we realized that the problem is actually more insidious than that. Mm -hmm. When it comes to investing, not only are you not getting your fair share of the pie, we're not even being served the same thing as individual investors. So frequently, mm -hmm. we are the suckers at the poker table. And whether it's high-frequency trading or payment for order flow, we are being milked. We're being milked by intermediaries who take our fees. Uh, we're being milked by counterparties who have superior information and have advantages over us. And we all band together ourselves, right? I mean, what happened on Reddit during COVID was amazing. I think we all felt like we stormed the castle. I've been an investor. It was like a presidential time. speech. I was like, I'm about right? to treat it. <laughs> I, mean, I felt like I've been an investor since age 15, you know? So been at it a long time and I've had a lot of successes and failures as an investor. But the re reason we started Ground Floor is we realized I got very interested in the 2012 Jobs Act. And for those of you who don't know what that is, is a lot of things having to do with the IPO on-ramp and a, a bunch of changes to securities law that have really made a big difference for individual investors. One part of that that captured my imagination was the crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding legislation. Mm -hmm. It's Title III. And I had the very good fortune to meet one of the people who'd worked on that uh, legislation, who is now my co-founder, uh, Nick Bargava. I was thinking about how could I, as an investor, participate in these private markets? And now it's very obvious, right? Alternatives have blown up, whether it's cryptocurrency, investing fractionally in art, that's a thing. You want to go on Rally Road and buy a piece of a collectible, you could do that, right? This has really happened over the last 10 years. This market has developed. But when we started the company 10 years ago, we saw that would happen. And we cheered it on because we think individual investors deserve the same access and the same opportunity that hedge funds have, private equity has, mm -hmm. big high net worth investors have. And if you look at their portfolios, they hold a lot more alternatives, private market investments in real estate and beyond than most of us do. 
-hmm. Now that's starting to change. If you look at a study Bank of America put out in December, I think it was, their study shows what we all know to be true, which is the younger you are, the more open you are to alternatives and the more you're thinking about alternative investments, not public market investments, as the way to fund your retirement, saving for a house, saving for something and, and for investing. So the market is headed that way. We saw it happening. And the reason we built ground floor into what it is today is we wanted to pick an alternative that was large, very familiar to people, uh, and very lucrative, very, very lucrative for the investors. So happy to talk about what that is, but that's why we started the company. That's how I, as an investor since age 15, you know, in public market stuff, like not really active in alternatives up until I started ground floor. But we've been, we've been on the bleeding edge of getting the mass market into alternatives now for 10 years. I did my first private investment actually in a, in a cannabis company, the first legal one in, in Minnesota. And I thought I was never going to make money off of it. And, and sure enough, a few years later, it came back. It, they got bought by another company. And it was my first foray in doing a private investment. And You're one for one? one for You're one, one so for far. one? I might retire. Yeah. You're amazing. <laughs> I'm gold. No, so, you know, I know like the, the Kickstarters of the world that are out there, you know, and, and these are all different regulations. So I don't think our audience, you know, needs to go define each of these different regulations. But you know, I think what's really interesting, you know, we talk about this diversification of your portfolio when it just purely comes to stocks, but like now we're talking going outside of stocks and private investments. And there's still, of course, inherent risk, right? And, and sometimes people have fear, you know, that you may not have be able to look at the SEC documents or be able to look at the earnings reports and things like that. And so understanding there's risk in every single investment. Like, how do you guys do this with different homes, especially with the interest rates rising, yeah. BlackRock buying all these houses? You know, like, how does that all play into this? So we knew that alternative investing would be big. We also, as we talked to investors in the early days and looked at the regulations as well that, you know, that you could use to do this for everybody, not just accredited investors, or we realized that, there were two really two or three really big problems in alternative investing that that had to be dealt with in order to build a mass market product. Now, we've scaled it, right? We're at $300 million in assets under management. We have 40,000 investors with assets on the platform. We've scaled it, right? We're we're a, we've gotten past the early days, right? And and have proven that there's real volume here in a real business. But back then, we we're trying to figure out how to tap into the real mass market opportunity. And we realized in alternatives, you have a few problems. One is liquidity, right? It's kind of what you were saying. You're, you're not sure when or if you're ever going to get your money back. Right. And that's unnerving, right? Because it because if you're an individual investor, you kind of, you you may be a long-term investor, but you still want to know, you know, that you the can ability. get your money out. Yeah. Right? So that's one problem. Another problem is a lot of these assets are very esoteric. Mm. You know, they're they're not familiar to us. We don't really know how they work. And We've all come to know since the 70s and 80s when individual investors started investing at scale in individual stocks, we've all kind of come to know what it's like to buy a stock and be a long-term holder of a stock. But there's a lot to learn about most alternatives, right? They're alternative because they're esoteric. So the way we solve those two problems is number one, we picked a market that is very familiar to everyone. At any given time, 62, 64% of Americans are they own a house. And if you don't own a house, the reality is you probably watch a house flipping show or mm -hmm. you're thinking about buying a house or you used to buy a house. 
And so it's an asset where people are already invested and already familiar. It's also very tangible, right? Which is great because it's you can drive by it, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can drive by something like it. It's also, we also built this to be a debt security, which so many times when we think of investing, we're thinking about being equity investors, right? And, yeah. and investing in credit is a different animal. It's kind of unfamiliar to most people. I want to pause. I want you to dig yeah. into this because I was I was watching another a YouTube that it, it was just talking about ground floor. So I was trying to get a little bit more acquainted with the business and, and the model sure. works. And so I, I do think this is like a, a very important point, more or less, that to, to delineate, I guess, how it, you're not actually buying the home or investing in the increase in the home. You feel more comfortable because you know it is a debt instrument more so, right? Yeah, it, when that's where we started. Now, we offer a lot of different products on ground floor now, and we're we're really innovating in the capital stack so you can buy the exposure you want. But I think the point that I'm making here is that when we first started, we knew that we needed to solve that liquidity problem and the familiarity problem and make something that was tangible. So we found this amazing market of hard money lending for residential real estate investment projects. And we realized that if we could originate loans in that category, they'd be small loans. Mm -hmm. Now that's important because if it's a small loan, I can give you a small minimum investment and I can, with a, with a small amount of liquidity in the early days with the early adopters, right? I can, I can enable you to build a very broad portfolio, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, very different results in terms of predictability and liquidity. If you buy one asset for $100,000 or even $10,000, right? With $100,000 on our platform, $10 at a time, I mean, you are exceedingly well. <laughs> You're at yeah. 10,000 loans, right, in your portfolio. And you don't even have to be diversified that much in order to get a good result. And when I say a good result, I mean cash flow mm -hmm. and a predictability of rate of return. So these loans are short-term, where they're like 12-month loans typically. Mm -hmm. uh, on average, we've returned capital about 2,700 loans since inception. We've returned 10.2%. And that return has come on average in about nine to 10 months. Now, that's really fast turnover. And it's so fast that if you compare it to something that people are more familiar with, like a REIT. Now, keep in mind, like ground floor is not a fund. You're building your own fund. You're building your own portfolio of loans. You're not investing in my fund, right? Or ground floor's fund. You, you get to be the manager, right? And we don't charge the investor yeah. anything for that, right? Exactly. So without, yeah, without the if charge. you compare it to a REIT, and that's what most people think of when they think of investing in real estate, they're either buying a property or they're investing in a REIT. Mm. REITs might pay you what, six or 8% annual dividend? Dude, ground floor is cash flowing empirically 10 to 12% of your total stack every month. And that's because once, once you have a big portfolio of loans, you're always generating cash off those loans. That's why I like it. I'm a crypto investor. I'm a public markets investor. I'm a private company investor. I love investing, right? Mm -hmm. The thing I love about my ground floor portfolio is in a season where startups aren't, my startups aren't getting liquid generally, uh, you know, my crypto is not something I'm going to sell. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm long Bitcoin. I'm, I'm never going to sell it anyway, but if I was going to sell it, I'm certainly not selling it at these prices. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm stacking, you know, it's an awesome compliment to that because I'm always cash flowing my ground floor portfolio. And that's, that's very unusual, I think, in investing to have something that will cash flow like that and deliver that kind of yield on that kind of term.
So we started there for those reasons. It solves, I think, the most important problems in alternative investing. And I think that's why we're one of the largest, most successful alternatives platforms out there. In terms of making investors feel, you know, safe, are these uh, all accredited investors? Is there regulations that kind of, you know, if there's a default, you know, what happened? And that's probably a secondary question. Like what happened there as well? Yeah, look, when we started this back in 2013, there were several and still are, you know, several platforms, maybe a dozen platforms that sound like ground floor. Yeah. We dedicated ourselves uniquely to two critical propositions that I think have helped us to be successful over the years that was differentiated from anybody else. Number one, we refused to take the easy path of selling or offering securities to accredited investors only. From the very beginning, our product was open to everyone. Now, that meant we had to spend about four years and about a million and a half dollars, you know, actually probably two million if you count everything, a couple million dollars of capital, you know, getting through the regulatory process to offer securities of this type under Regulation A. This is a very unusual type of offering. It's it's almost unprecedented with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And it took a while to, to earn trust, to do the necessary work. But we were qualified under Regulation A for the first time in 2015 and then nationwide in 2017. And that made a big difference for the following reason. One, now, you know, up until we were qualified, we were limited to the state of Georgia, right, where we were using a, a state level crowdfunding law so that we could pilot our product. That meant that we were like super small. There were all these other platforms that were, you know, selling to accredited investors, offering securities to accredited investors who were growing like crazy because they didn't have any regulatory oversight. They didn't have any regulatory burden. They could, you know, grow really fast. The problem with that is, uh, you know, well, there are two problems. One, when you don't go the regulatory path, you're not submitting to the level of regulatory oversight and you're not engaging in the type of disclosure that investors expect and frankly deserve. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important that regulatory oversight, it's actually made our company better. I I can point to important ways in which regulatory oversight and having to meet regulatory requirements made us better. And that's something for the long term that investors can rely upon. The other thing that happened to a lot of these guys is they, you know, they found themselves competing for a very narrow segment of investors, which means they really had to go to institutions in order to get to scale eventually. If you look at these platforms that sound like ground floor, either they're selling to accredited investors only. I'm thinking of something like Peer Street. You know, by the way, our model is crushing Pier Street in terms of returns we're delivering to investors. Like, if you invest there, like, dude, what are you doing? You're earning 200 bips less than you'd be earning on ground floor. Honestly, like, it's crazy. And with better certainty, because it's minimums over there is a thousand bucks. Our minimum is $10. Why is that? What's your competitive? I mean, without sharing your. Because the competitive, like, people underestimate the path dependence uh, that a startup goes through, right? It's path dependence. We submitted ourselves to the tightest constraints from the very earliest days. We didn't take the easy out. We engineered this platform from the very beginning, soup to nuts, to self-originate. Peer Street doesn't do that. They buy from other originators, right? That's a real weakness in their business model now. You know what I mean? Like, and there are others who are like them that suffer from those same problems. But, you know, we did the work, man. We 
met the constraints, right? That had to be met in order to, and we did it from day one. Mm-hmm. And and that that enabled us to get to a ten dollar minimum. I'll, I'll tell you, we're probably going to cut that minimum again. We're right. getting ready to do it. We're going to cut it again because we want more diversification, more people. You know, we're we're serious about this, right? That have been since the beginning. So I think there's um, that's one path that those platforms that sound like ground floor took. The mm-hmm. other one, the other path that a lot of them took was to cop out, and I won't name names here, but because mm-hmm. I, I like a bunch of these companies, I really do. How do I say the name? No, I'm just kidding. What's that? <laughs> I'm gonna say nod and wink at me. If but but the this. but the the cop out was they gave up on the idea that we should all get the same choice and control. They 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 ended up for non-accredited investors only offering funds. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a loss because if you force me to invest in a fund, you are robbing me of my agency. You are, it's nice, it can be convenient to invest in fund as an option. Like in the stock market, I'll buy an ETF. Right. I might even buy a mutual fund, you know, yeah. or an index fund. Like I'll do it, but I want the choice of buying, of constructing my portfolio the way that I want to, right? Mm-hmm. And so to tell people that the only way to invest in private markets is to, you know, invest in a fund where, by the way, a couple of things happen when you invest in a fund, especially a private REIT, for example. Mm-hmm. Number one, you pay. So you got to pay that manager, right? And number two, the manager gets to decide when and on what terms you can have your capital back. Mm-hmm. That's crap, man. That's outmoded, right? What do you mean I, I have a three-year uh, period in which I can't redeem my shares? You know, what if I want to redeem my shares? I didn't read the fine print. What are you talking about, right? You're going to penalize me for now taking a redemption? Or during COVID, a lot of these shut down redemptions. In fact, just last December, Blackstone itself on Beery shut down its its redemptions, mm-hmm. right? While they ran around and tried to get together some liquidity to meet redemption requests. A model where you as the investor get to control your portfolio, you don't have that problem. Imagine if like, you, the only way you can invest the stock market is you, you some guy's fund and you know like you wanted to sell your stocks because you thought the market was going to go down it's like oh no for the good of everyone mm-hmm. we've decided to pause redemptions right love that for the good of everyone well, what are you saw talking about america people can even pull out the other day what are you or talking something? about man like so so i i object to that model and we and most companies that sound like ground floor mm-hmm. either are only available to accredited investors or they're they force non-accredited investors into a fund structure and i think the reason we've been successful is we've always chosen the hard path of not doing those things uh and we've gotten to scale doing it i mean a lot, a lot of people doubted that we could get to scale doing it we have no it's it's interesting and it brought up a kind of a, another question i guess in my mind here that you know with you know fund managers you know my parents i'm just hearing them in the back of my head right now it's like stick your money with a you know financial advisor or stick your money with someone, you know, the experts in the field, right? So do you guys have like some sort of education or you, you expect you yeah, know, I mean, to do we, some self-education on which ones should be a good house to choose? Yeah, look, um, here's the thing, right? Uh, I love investing. Confess that at the beginning of our, of our time together here. Uh, most people don't, don't love investing. Or mm-hmm. if they do love investing, they love it like you loved online poker. It was interesting for, I don't know, a few months. Yeah, yeah. And then you got bored and you went off and did something else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Most people don't want to spend their weekends reading PPMs or 
you know, coming up to speed on how to be a good investor in something. Yeah. Some of us do, and that's cool. That's, that's a cool hobby. Podcast. People listen, they don't want to read. Yeah. That was right. how I started the podcast. I didn't I didn't have time. I had a nine to five and, and there you go. some other co-hosts that would come on and we bring in guests that can teach us uh, for those people. Exactly. exactly. Much better, much more efficient and fun. Um, hopefully this is fun, but hopefully not painful. <laughs> um, so I think that, I think we realized that. And so we built a system that makes it pretty easy to mm-hmm. not spend a lot of time deciding where you're going to allocate your... T- $10 per loan or $100 per loan, which is the average that people tend to allocate. Mm. And we've created a grading system that's based on six simple factors. And people learn pretty quickly what those factors are and how to understand the risk. We have a shorthand for that with the grading system uh, and a couple other features of the platform. And it's pretty easy to just quickly allocate your capital. And really, you know, you can pick and choose and, and decide to invest more in one than another. You know, let's say you like certain states versus others geographically, or you like, you know, certain situations like certain borrowers or, you know, whatever you choose, you can make your own decisions, but you can also lean into the grading algorithm, you know, in simple, quick factors to to make your allocation decisions. And it's the law of large numbers, right? We're not like some of these real estate crowdfunding platforms that are requiring you to make a $25,000 investment. Mm-hmm. in some commercial building, right? If I'm making a $25,000 investment, I'm spending some time making sure I understand everything I can about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're making, uh, you know, $110 investments, you know, y- you're probably going to make some mistakes and you might look back and be like, why did I invest in that? Well, it's a very small loss because it's not an equity investment. It's a debt investment. Mm-hmm. And, it, and there are losses. Of course, there are losses, right? Uh, I love platforms that say they've never lost capital. I'm like, well, you're not earning enough return for your investment. Madoff said that too, I think. But he did, right? <laughs> I saw you did a tweet, which we're going to bring I up did. tweets here later. But the, <laughs> and by the way, for the listeners, this is kind of a new little thing I'm going to start doing with our guests is pulling up random tweets and putting them on the spot here and, and having them defend the tweet. We'll get now I'm trying it. to remember what did I tweet about Burning Madoff? Just, All right, let's go. <laughs> in, in just a second. So I guess just real quick. So I think, you know, there is, when I was going through it uh, and watching the YouTubes, this is a year ago, so I'm, I'm making some assumptions within the platform, but there is an investor that puts in their initial money down. They take a loan from you guys, essentially, and then they'll go sell that house that they gave a simple example with, you know, $100,000 down. The loan, let's say, was a million. They think they can sell the house for 1.3, right? But we're making the money there on that loan. And so we we know we have that essentially like a fixed rate, right? It's not going to be a variable rate. Correct. Yeah. And that's that I think is what people is are less familiar with is being a, a credit investor, right? Or a debt investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a different part of the capital stack to be in. And therefore, I think a great compliment to a lot of the other things I like to invest in personally. Yeah. But you are effectively loaning money to a real estate investor who's building a house or fixing and flipping a property or, you know, renovating one for rental. And, you know, we deal with experienced operators. These are entrepreneurs who know what they're doing. This is their typically their full-time job. So we, some of them it's part-time, but the vast majority, they're full-time guys. And they have a plan. We've done the loan based on the value of the property now. Mm-hmm. how much they're going to invest in it and where we see the exit happening. Mm-hmm. And 
based on our assessment of that person's experience in pulling off a project like that. And if they pass all those tests, mm. yeah, we'll make a loan on the property. Now, it's it's a margin loan, meaning you know they've got to put some equity in as well. They've got to have skin in the game, and that's part of the rating on the loan and part and reflected in the rate. So if you have somebody who's not putting much in, you know, and it's a riskier project and maybe they don't have as much experience, it's going to carry a higher rate, right? If it's an a pro who's putting in a lot of cash and we really like the collateral in the area, then it's going to be a lower rate. You mm-hmm. know, they're going to and and that's great for them. Uh, and you can really pick your risk across the spectrum. So are way. you guys managing so if if we have some listeners that are flipping homes today or they're, yeah. they're involved in that operator side of things, is there a portal or a, a way to? There is. Head? Yeah. If you come to our site and there are a couple of different borrower links there where you can kind of get in touch with our folks. And th- actually a lot of, a lot of operators like to talk to our people because they're very experienced and they can help you figure out whether we think your deal is going to pencil out, mm-hmm. not only for us, but for you. <laughs> you know, yeah. do we think it's worth what you think it might be worth? Is it a realistic plan? You know, mm-hmm. what do we see in that area? Our, our, originators are uh, our business development managers are really experienced in this and you know they're great resources so uh, you know it's interesting two-thirds of people who do this work don't even end up borrowing money they go partners with somebody mm-hmm. you know and if you go partners you're splitting your profits I mean you're yeah. splitting your losses too so you you do a risk you do avoid the risk of foreclosure because if you don't pay us back you know of course we'll work with you like if it's for a good reason you know there are delays or there's you know something but if the project didn't end up going as planned or you're not you're in, you're out over your skis we will foreclose right and a lot of people they don't borrow because they're afraid of that right they right. they but they give up a lot of money they give up a lot, you know big share of their profits when they don't borrow what happens so, if you know with any investment as we talked about nothing's yeah. 100% right so sure. the off chance that the investment goes south the person can't you know sell the home they yep. don't have enough money they need more money like what can go wrong? And, and, you know, I guess yeah. as an investor, Typic- you know, what typically can- what happens with these projects is they run long, mm-hmm. especially during COVID. We saw that because of all of the disruptions mm-hmm. and permitting and labor and supply chain. And, you know, I mean, there was COVID was a mess, right? Like it took a long time, you know, to make progress on these projects during COVID. And there are circumstances that always are going to arise where the construction project is more complex than we thought, or the permitting takes longer, or, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes the borrower, the operator doesn't want to sell the pro- property because they feel like prices are about to increase, mm-hmm. you know, so they want to hang on to it. And so you get alerts along the way that hey, we, do. we, we provide updates on every loan about every 30 days generally. Okay. And we step that up a lot. If, if the loan is coming closer to maturity and it doesn't look like it's going to be on time, that's the major risk, right? In investing. But I'll tell you, if you go invest in a hundred loans today, by the numbers, if history repeats itself as it has now for eight or nine years of lending, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in our, in our portfolio, you know, within a month or two, your first loan is going to pay back, you know, uh, a mm-hmm. few months later, a handful more are going to pay back about six months in about half of them are going to pay back. Mm-hmm. And so if you keep investing, you're always getting cash flow because there are as many early repayments as there are late repayments, and it tends to balance out. Um, we do foreclose on a, about 1% to 2% of projects, and mm-hmm. we end up owning them and then trading them to another investor or completing them ourselves or listing them ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's where 
really the risk of losses. Uh, in general, it's binary, it's not going to be, is it zero or, you know, it's, the, I don't think we've ever, I don't think we've ever returned zero. Uh, I think in general on a foreclosure, the ri- the expected loss, mm-hmm. if, you know, depending on what it is, might be 30% of principal, okay. you know, you might lose a third. And, and the way we, we run these numbers, we say, look, historically we've, you know, ended up in foreclosure on about 1% of these where, you know, it's real estate owned and it's challenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we lose about maybe a third of principal on those deals. And that's how we get to our 30 basis point, 0.3% loss ratio. Mm-hmm. But what you really look at as an investor is not how much you lost, but how much you made net of the losses. Yeah. And our portfolios returned about 10.2% net of that's those losses. Um, right. I mean, and that's, what, that's why I say it's 30% if, right now. <laughs> well, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I read, you know, different REITs report on the result and they're like, if you invested with us this year, we you only lost two percent. We beat the S and P by seventeen percent. I'm like, bro, yeah. <laughs> Ground floor has been over here just clipping ten percent coupons, you know. And of course, yeah. we've raised our rates, so those numbers are even getting bigger now. Uh, it, as the market raised rates, we've raised rates. So, what's the you know? And I'm not as uh, familiar as I'd love to be, you know. And in, in my family's in, in real estate to some capacity, but. I'm not as well versus that I'd love to be. And so like, what, what kind of risks are you guys looking at maybe from like a macro level? Um, you know, whether that's rates, you know, bigger things, you know, Blackstone buying up all the properties, yeah, closing, you know, like how, what we, kind of macro things are you looking at there? So we look at, we look at, so our, if you look at our current portfolio, right, the loans that our investors hold and are waiting for a return, right, on, and that's the most important risk to us, right? Is we're looking at home price appreciation and we want to make sure that our lending is margined well enough based mm-hmm. on market conditions and what we see on the horizon a year out mm-hmm. that even if, you know, home values decline a lot, you know, that we're still going to get our principal back. Mm-hmm. And we're also running a calculation to make sure the operator is going to earn his money back, right? So we want to make sure that everybody's we want to make sure we do loans in which everybody's being made whole. Mm-hmm. And if we don't see that, we won't do it, right? Now we make mistakes, right? Of course, like un- unexpected things happen along the way or you learn, you know, projects don't work out. There's execution risk, right? There, and we try to control for that by looking at experience. But if you're talking about the macro market, we're looking at home price appreciation and that's informed by you know what's happening in the rental market, what's happening with employment. Mm-hmm. We're in markets and in segments of markets that are very favorable for job growth, uh, for employment generally, for demographic shifts. Like our portfolio is heavily invested in the Sun Belt, so mm-hmm. especially in Georgia, Florida, South Carolina. You know these are places where that benefit from demographic trends. Yep, and because I mentioned path dependence before. You know, because we started small and, you know, we grew patiently over, over the years, mm-hmm. you know, in general, we're positioned below the median level house price. So we're selling, you know, starter homes, you know, a trade up, one trade up home. And the great thing about that in a market like this is if mortgage rates are high, you know, that can really hurt people who are um, dependent on a, a good interest rate to be able to afford a lot more house above the median. 
but it's less likely to hurt below the median because those people can trade down, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's always people moving into the market, you know, as households form. So we've been a beneficiary of that. You know, if we look at home price appreciation, peak to trough and sort of year over year, you know, Mm -hmm. in every one of our, not only our markets, but our zip codes. And uh, we're very, we feel very good about how the portfolio is held up as far as home price appreciation. And that's, you know, that's a mortgage rates are what's getting all the attention right today. Um, I mean, to cut you off. Yeah, no, at all. Oh, will you guys get into, there's other products too, and not to make this a promotion for, for ground, even though it, you know, it feels like some of it because after this, I'm for sure going to add some money to it, honestly. And then Uh, I hope you will. It's good for you. I actually will. And then I will take a screenshot to prove it on, on Twitter. But, um, in terms of like recurring, like I, I, I love, you know, acorns. I always explain this. Yeah. Story. Like I save yeah. money every day for, yeah. years, you know, to buy my wife's ring, even, you know, there and so you, go. you guys have anything like that, like a recurring. We, do. Um, yeah. we launched an app last year uh, that's been hugely successful. In fact, it grew so fast, we really had to cap adoption of it called Stairs. Mm-hmm. And Stairs offers you a 4% rate, you know, which is fine. Like it's not, it's not the best rate ever. But the cool thing about it is that, it has some features that encourage you to save okay. uh, and that, you know, it's been really popular because I think because it's automatic, you just sort of set it and forget it. Just yeah. you just transfer money to it automatically. You can there are a lot of cool features to it that people have appreciated to help grow their savings. Uh, we have a couple of other we have automatic investing as well on the platform. So you can set up, you know, regular transfers to the platform that will then automatically without you doing a thing automatically invest the money oh, yeah. in okay. strategies that you choose on the platform. That's so we great. have automated investing as well. So we realize most people don't want to, you know, log in all the time and, you mm-hmm. know, go set stuff up. So we, for people who want it and trust it, you know, we set up automation. Well, it's almost like, a, we talked about like, I don't know if you got involved with like the NFTs, but like where NFTs are going to be going in crypto. And and I, this was the tweet I was going to bring up, which we touched on a few things here. The Bernie, you said the main lesson we should all take away from the Bernie Madoff tragedies as portrayed in the recent Netflix documentary is a great virtue of the self-custody Bitcoin. And you kind of touched on this earlier, you yeah. know, when you're talking about just you, you, the virtues. And I, I believe in that too. That's why it originally attracted me to crypto. I do believe government's good. And I think regulation is good yeah. in a structured way that doesn't quell innovation. And so Curious, like where you see the direction of NFTs and if you guys will ever in- integrate crypto, because I'm, I'm just thinking of like having a portfolio and I, you know, I don't physically have the home in my hand, but I, I yeah. have basically almost like an NFT that is showing my ownership in that. Yeah. So I'm curious if that played a role and in, in saw influx of younger folks coming on the platform. I, I am um, very intrigued by this space. The reason I tweeted what I tweeted is I think you know, I believe in equal opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think in finance, that's as important as in any other area in finance and investing. And what is opportunity without agency, right? Mm -hmm. Agency is just a fancy word that means I get to decide what I do, right? I mean, that's what it means. It means I decide, not it's decided for me or I have to turn over the reins to somebody else. And if you're a believer in opportunity, you almost have to believe in agency because opportunity is meaningless without agency. Yep. And I and I what I love about what's happened with Bitcoin in particular is it's immutable. 
I can hold it. I, I control it. There's no intermediary that holds it. And of course, I would, I would hope that the securities that ground floor offers will, will come as close to that as soon as we can at scale, uh, as looks feasible, right? There are some hurdles to that. There are technical hurdles or regulatory hurdles or legal hurdles. And I, I think there have been a lot of folks with that insight in real estate in particular that have found it difficult to scale mm -hmm. using a blockchain based approach. Or I think there are good and valid reasons for that. But we have worked hard to provide as much agency as a web 2.0 framework will allow. And we will over the next 10 years, I think we will see some tokenization. These things always take longer. The more important it is, the longer it takes, right? The SEC, I, I've been reading Charles Schwab's autobiography. Uh, yes. It's very good, by the way. I'm really enjoying it. And what really struck me about his story is what really created the opportunity for his business as a discount broker is when the SEC uh, deregulated commissions, mm. uh, commission structures in the 70s, I think it was 74. Somebody will commit, correct me on the exact year, but it was about right. then. <laughs> and and he writes about what an opportunity he saw there. And he actually thought it might ruin his business because he thought Merrill Lynch might actually undercut him. You know, mm -hmm. it turns out Merrill Lynch used the opportunity to raise rates, which really created an opening. But the real benefit of that didn't show up until the 80s when we had the bull market, right, to, to support it. And then in the 90s, when internet technology started to show up and really open up access and distribution. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was a regulatory change that happened in 1974 that took 10 and then 20 years to really have its impact. And I think crypto has to go through that same yeah. sort of process of not only adoption, but also, uh, you know, also regulation. Right. I think it's healthy if properly regulated. And it's such a it's such a new technology that I think it's going to take a while to to regulate it properly. By the way, the, the regulations that opened our opportunity, I mentioned the Jobs Act in 2012 expanded Reg A, which is the framework that we use and, and, you know, gave rise to Reg CF, which a lot of other people use to do similar types of things like funding startups. You know, the legislation passed in 2012. The Reg A rules came out two years later in 14. The Reg CF rules didn't come out till four years later mm. in 16. You know, and so just imagine, right, once the rules come out, then you start the process of like innovating and building companies to sort of take advantage of it. And it's only now that you're seeing people like Start Engine or WeFunder, or, you know, the like. Yeah. 10 years later, man, you know, yeah. it takes a long time. And I, and I think that's hard for those of us who love these innovations and are willing to tolerate, you mm -hmm. know, sort of what it's like to use these early technologies. I mean, I know using ground floor in the early days wasn't easy. You know, right. we didn't have the investment wizard and we didn't have automated investing and we didn't have, you, in fact, we didn't even have enough loans to sell. You know, like it was hard right. for us just to figure out how to, you know, supply enough product in the early days. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, getting through the regulatory piece of it and the commercial piece of it and the product development piece of it um, and the, the consumer adoption, it just takes time. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a believer uh, in tokenization, self-custody, uh, decentralization, and I would, I, I'm intent on our company getting there. You know, 
the timeline though isn't determined just by us. No, totally. And I, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with all, you know, the regulations that are constantly changing and, and they're trying to figure it out and, and jockeying for position. And I think I actually am even more bullish, you know, knowing, you know, the space a little bit more of where this could go and talking with some uh, other folks in real estate, just like the time it takes to go to the mortgage. You have to send it to like five different people. If one signature is off, then you have to like resend it to everyone. Yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. Cost associated with that, like 50, 75 bucks application, like all of that, I think in the next coming years, I agree, there's going to be have to be some regulation there. But that will actually, in my opinion, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that will increase the velocity, right? If you can, if I you think can, it will. Or you just fast. Yeah, I mean, customer value rules, right? So if you create real customer value, not just technology value, like, hey, look at what this cool toy does, but it really yeah. creates value for a customer. And I think that tends to, and I think that's what a lot of these sort of solutions are looking for is where are they going to create the value? And I think tokenizing real world assets is a real contender for that. I love it. Well, Brian, this has been awesome. I'm I'm very excited that I got to have an opportunity to connect with you. I know you've been very busy and I'm glad Andy connected us, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We got to give a shout out to Andy Levinson. We got to do that. We have to. Follow Brian on Twitter. It's Brian underscore Dally, D-A-L-L-Y. Groundfloor.com is the website. You guys have a mobile app on... We I- do. We sure do. If you search for the Ground Floor app, you'll get it. Awesome, awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. Till I need-